The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thank you, Philip. Well, good morning, and uh, just a privilege, pleasure to be with you. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into the Word. Jesus, we thank you for the Word that you have given us this morning that we have already heard read for us. We thank you for the truth that we find in it and the the application that we're going to draw from it. Father, today as we unpack this topic, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive your truth, that that walls and fears and shame and guilt and questions and insecurities would, would crumble before the truth of your word that you would bring redemption in an area of our lives that greatly needs it. Father, I pray that you would take the measly words of this man and that you would speak them through your Holy Spirit to to the hearts of the people in here today. May we be convicted, may we be challenged, may we be encouraged by your word today. We pray these things in your gracious, gracious name. Amen. Amen. We're in the middle of the series called Gospel and Culture. And so two weeks ago, we talked about racial reconciliation. If you were not here with us, I highly encourage you to go listen to that message from Pastor Ronnie. Last week, we dealt with sanctity of life, and, and Sam led us through that, um, through that journey where, where we're called to be people who, um, who value and see life um, in the image of, of God at all stages of life. And he called us one of the most convicting things he said within his message to me was that if you claim to be a pro-life and that only shows up once every four years at the polls, you're not really pro-life, right? That it would be something that we hold to, that we see the image of God within the lives of people daily and we actively live on behalf of that. I know a lot of you missed last week because of the ice storm, right? And so um, I encourage you to go listen to that on podcast and check out that message. Today, the topic that we have is redeeming sexuality. Redeeming sexuality. It's my first sermon back 
from sabbatical, and we're talking about sex, right? And so that's like, okay, great, I'm back, and this is the topic that we get. But I believe, honestly, as we go through this, there's very few topics, if any, that are more central to our culture and the identity of our culture today, and few, if any, more topics that need the gospel spoken to them today. And so we're going to unpack this and dive into this today. The sexual revolution has left our culture in an interesting, interesting place. Today, the reality is that your elementary age child would have to go to the bathroom with kids of other genders simply at a child's whim of which gender they identify with today. And that at parent-teacher conferences, said teacher would not be allowed to tell you as the parent what gender your child identifies with. That's a reality in the schools in North Carolina today. The reality today living here in the Northland is that if you go shopping in the Zona Rosa, just a few minutes drive from here, you're likely going to leave with your child possibly asking questions of, was that a man or a woman? The shops are full of people working, taking your money and exchanging with you who have embraced this transgender lifestyle. You seldom can find a TV show that does not flaunt extramarital sex before us as if it should be the go-to escape for all of our stress, anxiety, insecurity, and celebration. And we live in a day and age where pornography is readily available at any moment in our pockets. We pull out our devices and we don't just get images, but we get videos, and not just videos of, of naked bodies, but videos of sexual acts even as degrading as rape itself for your pleasure. The sexual revolution has left us in a place with much hurt and brokenness. And as Russell Moore says, the church has to be equipped to handle, to deal with, to love those who are broken because of the sexual revolution. Today is simply a drop in the bucket of this conversation, and it's only the beginning for Emmaus. But it's something that we as a church, it's something that I as your pastor, my wife as as my wife and a woman of our church are passionate about seeing at our church. We want to see a culture where the broken, the sexually broken and damaged can find healing and wholeness. And so today we begin this journey. But before we jump into this text, here's what we need to understand. This is not an abstract sermon preached to hypothetical people about a generic cultural issue. This is a real sermon preached to real people whom I really know on a topic that is very dear to many of our hearts. That's very real to many of our lives. Because in this very room this morning, there are people who have been sexually active outside of marriage. There are people in this room who have been sexually abused as children and teens. There's people in this very room, this moment, who have been raped as adults. There's people in this room who have been manipulated and giving themselves to others, whether through photos, videos, or physically. In this room, there are people who have forced others to have sex. In this room are people who are addicted to pornography. Some of you likely even looking at it this morning before you came here. In this room, there are people who have had affairs There are people who have had homosexual partners and homosexual lifestyles. In this room are people who are married and have struggled with sexuality with each other for years. That's simply those of you in this room. He agreed. 
That's simply those of you who are our covenant members. And I don't know the stories of all of you, but I know every one of those stories. So this is not an abstract sermon to a random group of people. This is real for us. And this speaks to the heart of us. It speaks to the heart of those in here. And the church must be a safe place for people to talk, to confess, and to seek help and to find healing in this. In this room today, most of us, I'll say most of us to be generous, likely all of us, are tempted in some form or fashion with sexual sin or sexual avoidance. With sexual sin or sexual avoidance. And as Owen Strand says, the gospel does not exempt us from digging through our messy temptations. And so today, we dig. Today, we dig. The Bible isn't silent on sexuality. It speaks to it greatly. And it's not, it doesn't only speak to it in terms of what not to do. That gets the publicity, right? Don't have sex before marriage. Don't have homosexual relationships. Don't do, have affairs. Don't do this. Don't lust. Don't, don't, don't. The Bible doesn't only speak to the don'ts. It also speaks to the do's. It also speaks to the do's. Husbands, do give yourselves to your wives. Wives, do give yourselves to your husbands. The Song of Solomon is an entire book about this relationship between a man and a woman, particularly chapter four. Go read it. Husbands, you should read it and you should try out some of his pickup lines. (laughs) Your hair is like a flock of goats. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep. Let me try that one out today. Hey, babe, your teeth, let me tell you about them. They look like sheep. <laughs> not just any sheep, a whole flock of sheep. And not just a flock of sheep, but a flock of sheep that just got a haircut. They look good. Your breasts are like two fawns. I'm not sure what he's looking at. <laughs> right? Surely there's some cultural, cultural translation that needs to take place here. I wouldn't just use these lines verbatim. Do some research and figure out what he's saying and then try that line because apparently they worked. Because what follows these lines is an incredibly steamy account of a love relationship between a husband and a wife. The Bible speaks to this. And it doesn't just say what not to do sexually, but it actually says what to do sexually. And it actually lines out for us that sexuality is something that's not gross and not wrong and not dirty but it's something that's to be celebrated and praised. It's something that's to be adored and clung to. The Bible began talking about this as early as in Genesis chapter one, when it said, so God created male and female and he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God made two people. He made male and he made female. And the very first command he gave them It's not a no, but a yes. Genesis gets a lot of fame and popularity for the don't eat of this tree. That wasn't the first command God gave. The first command he gave in scripture and the first command he gave to mankind, period, was this, have sex. That doesn't get popularity in the church. The True Love Waits movement. I found my ring this week cleaning out my garage from when I was 12. 
The True Love Waits movement did not celebrate that command. Rather, it made us think that it was gross and something to stay away from completely rather than teaching us something to celebrate, but celebrate rightly. The gospel speaks to sexuality. And think on this. God did not have to make sex for reproduction. He created us the way he wanted to. He could have made woman to reproduce without sex. But he chose this way for reproduction. He did not have to create sex to feel good. But he created it to be pleasurable. Even giving the woman the clitoris that is simply for the purpose of pleasure. No other reason but pleasure to the command that he gives us of having sex. So it's something that he designed for a purpose. We see here that we are to multiply, to increase, to have children, and it's something that he gave us for our enjoyment. God made it intentionally. He made man and he made woman. He gave men male anatomy and he gave women female anatomy for the purpose of this command so that we could fulfill the command that he gave us. Be fruitful, have sex, and multiply. That's his command and he's called us to do it and he's asked us to enjoy it. Made us to enjoy it. We get this further in Genesis chapter 2. What Philip read for us a moment ago. We pick up in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, there was no helper found corresponding to him. So so hear this with me, church. God looked at man and noticed that man would be better with a companion. He would be better off with someone else. His responsibility of overseeing the earth, his responsibility of subduing creation, his responsibility of flourishing and building would take better shape if he had a companion, if he had someone to have relationship with. And so God gave him woman. Now, God brought every animal before him to see what Adam would say, and everyone came before him, and he's like, "Mm, lion, hippopotamus, platypus, naming them, but none of them brought pleasure to him for his helper. So, verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept, and God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Sometimes my wife will ask me to do something. I'm like, babe, I already gave you a rib. And she's like, no, God took that from you. I did not. I'm like, That's a good point. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib, made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man." 
God put him in a deep sleep. He took his rib and he formed out of this rib a woman. And then he walks her before Adam to see what he would say. And Adam says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This. A mind couldn't avoid social media and people retweeting things they agreed with with just the word this, period. Right? This. As if this is what I want you to look at. This is good. This is glorious. And he says this at last. Right? He'd been looking for someone like her. He didn't know what she even looked like. He had no idea in his mind what this would be, but there was something he was looking for, and at last he found it. The lion didn't work, right? The hippo didn't work. This worked. He saw her, and he proclaimed, at last, do you remember the first time that you saw your spouse? That, or maybe for some of you, it was like you like, didn't like each other for a long time, but that first time you were like, oh, Right, for, for, for me, it wasn't that long period until that came. It was just like immediately I walk into a coffee shop. My wife's sitting in the chair that I wanted to sit at. I walk up from behind her. I just see her tuft of hair over the chair. And I'm like, gum, someone's in my chair. And I come around the chair and I look down and I see her in all of her glory. And I went, someone's in my chair. All right. <laughs> and when I saw that she was reading The Pilgrim's Progress, I thought, well, she either is a Christian or she will be by the time she's done with that book. So we're going to have a conversation. Right? I am pursuing this woman. Do you remember that moment? It's like, at last, this is it. I've seen a lot of girls, but none like this. Well, Adam hadn't even seen a lot of girls. <laughs> he had seen the lion and the hippopotamus. He goes, at last. <laughs> I couldn't read that without thinking of Etta James's song. At last, my love has come along. Right? She sings it better than I do. Right? He sees her, and he breaks out in Etta James. At last. At last. He says, verse 24, or verse 23, this one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. Verse 24, and this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. This is why. Your Bible might say, therefore, because of these things that we've seen, a man leaves his father and mother and becomes one with his wife. When it says becomes one, it is referring to sexual intercourse with his wife. Right? Allow us just to take a brief aside for a moment here. A slight aside, a slight detour, if you will. In a sermon on redeeming sexuality, I think it's necessary here. This is the beginning of of what the scripture would have to speak to on issues of transgenderism and homosexuality. That God intentionally created a man and a woman with male anatomy and female anatomy for a purpose that in the union of marriage together, in the commitment together, they would become one. Woman was taken from man, and in sexual intercourse, she's united back to man, two parts becoming one again. It illustrates the very gospel for us. That we were one with God, sin broke in and separated us, and then through Christ, we we're unified to him again as one. When God saw that man needed a helper, he didn't make another man, but a woman. 
He didn't make her with a man's anatomy, but he made a woman with a woman's anatomy so that the two could fulfill his commandment to be fruitful and to multiply. This is why John Piper would say that there's no such thing as same-sex marriage. You can call it what you want, but it is not marriage because biblical marriage includes a woman and a man becoming one through intercourse, and that is not possible for two men or two women. Right? There is a becoming one that takes place when a man and a woman enter together. That defines what marriage is biblically and therefore defines what we understand marriage to be. That it's not to be between two men or two women, but between a man and a woman committed to each other for life and sealing that with sexual intercourse. This text makes it clear when it says that it doesn't say that one person should leave his father and mother and bond with another person and the two should become one, but that one man should leave his father and mother, bond with his wife, a woman, and the two should become one. Jesus affirms this in Matthew 19, 4 through 9, when he quotes this passage in Genesis, saying, have you not read that he who created, ironically being him, Jesus, right? Have you not read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined with to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Jesus is saying, I created intentionally with this purpose. I created intentionally a male and a female, to be joined together in sexual union, that is what marriage is. Paul affirms that marriage and sexual intercourse should be between a man and a woman in Romans 1, 18 through 27, among other places. We could go on, but for the sake of time, the rest of the sermon, we won't dive into that more, but we'd love to have the conversation with you if you have questions about that, of why we take that stance. But before we move on, let me just speak to this. What does that do? What does that mean for Emmaus and the homosexual or Emmaus and the transgender? What does that mean? How do we relate? How do we respond? How do we treat said person? Well, we believe, according to Scripture, that homosexuality is a sin. It must be dealt with as such. But hear this, church. It is a sin such as any other sexual sin. Therefore, we deal with the homosexual in the same way that we would deal with anyone that is in sexual sin. If the person claims to be a follower of Jesus, then we will point out their sin in love and gentleness, point out the truth of Scripture regarding the issue, and call for confession, repentance, and abstinence from the sin. It's how we handle any sexual sin, and to be honest, any sin at all. Here's your sin. Here's what the Scripture says to that. We ask you, plead with you, confess, repent, and abstain from that sin. For your joy, and for the sake of the gospel, for obedience to Christ, we plead with you for that. The church must be a place that calls sin, sin, and calls people to repentance from sin, but it also must be a place that is safe for confession, repentance, and growth and abstinence from sin. So we call it sin. And we call for repentance, but then we offer extreme grace and strong forgiveness and relentless commitment to walk with you as you grow and as you heal. If the person is not a believer, then I would call us to simply address said person with the gospel. To praise and celebrate Jesus and their holistic need for salvation rather than targeting a specific sin issue. 
We speak the gospel to the issue. We must love the person enough to speak the gospel to every part of their life. We love them enough to patiently walk with them through confession, repentance, abstinence, and healing. Okay, back to our text. Verse 25. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Why is this sentence here? If we're not careful, we could quickly read over this part and go on. But it's here for a purpose. It's not separated from the rest of the text. When Adam declared at last, he declared at last over a naked woman. When God called him and said, leave your father and mother, man will leave their father and mother. He's speaking this over this idea of Adam being naked, standing in front of Eve being naked. And there was no shame. Hear this. Adam stood before Eve naked and he was not ashamed. He didn't feel shame for delighting in this naked woman. He didn't feel shame for desiring this naked woman. He didn't feel shame in taking this naked woman to be his. He didn't feel shame to be seen naked by this naked woman. Have you ever heard the word naked so much? (laughs) Eve stood in front of Adam naked, seeing him for the first time. Can you imagine, ladies, the first time you met your husband, you're both naked. She's naked, he's naked, and she felt no shame. She didn't feel shame when when Adam looked at her naked body. She didn't feel shame when Adam oogled over her naked body. She didn't feel shame when Adam wanted her naked body or took her naked body. There was no shame. Why? Why didn't he feel shame? Why didn't she feel shame? Why didn't they feel shame? Think with me. She had never been used by a man for his pleasure at her expense. She had never been physically abused or hurt or spoken to in a degrading or hurtful way. She had never felt pressure to give herself to someone in order to buy their affection. She had never seen images of other naked women for the purpose of eliciting lust and desire within the hearts of selfish men. He had never convinced a girl who was not his to give himself to him, to give herself to him sexually. He had never manipulated a girl into undressing for him for his pleasure, only to walk away from her and leave her to herself. He had never sat in front of images of naked women on paper or on screen and pleasured himself in isolation. He had never been touched as a boy for the pleasure of disgraceful men. He had never been in a locker room. She had never been in a locker room with other boys or other girls who judged or made fun of their bodies. They had never been taught by the church that sex was gross and thus developing a desire to live asexual. They had never judged or been judged by another person or even themselves for that matter. Therefore, they stood with no shame. Why? Because the world had no sin. Sin had not yet entered the world. And a world with no sin is a world with no shame. And a world with no shame is a world where sexuality flourishes, where it's beautiful, enjoyable, life-giving, desirable, and embraced. 
It's a gift and not a curse. That's not the world that we live in, is it? We no longer live in the perfect, sinless world, but a fallen, broken, shattered world with many effects of sin. We live in a world where some of you women in this room today have been used by men for their pleasure at your expense. You have been physically abused and hurt or spoken to in degrading and hurtful ways. You have been pressured to give yourself to a man in order to buy their affection. You have seen images of other women's bodies used to elicit lust and desire within the hearts of selfish men. You have. Men. We live in a world where some of you have convinced a girl who is not your wife to give herself to you sexually. You have manipulated girls into undressing for you to find pleasure in, for your pleasure, only to walk away from them and leave them to themselves. You have sat in front of images of naked women on paper and on screen and pleasured yourself in isolation. You have been touched as a boy for the pleasure of disgraceful men. We have been made fun of for our bodies and our appearance. We have been taught, those of us who grew up in the church, by the church, that sex was gross. And we have judged and been judged. Even judging ourselves. Am I enough? What if I looked like that instead? And so there is shame. Because of shame, there's broken sexuality. Get this. If your broken sexuality is a result of shame, and your shame is a result of sin, and your broken sexuality is a sin issue. For some of us, it's a direct sin issue of ours. It's a sin that we have committed. For some of us, it's a sin issue that someone else committed against us. And because of their sinful act towards us, our sexuality is broken. But our sin is a sexual, or our sexual brokenness is a sin issue. That is really good news. That is really, really good news. Because if your sexual brokenness is a sin issue, then your sexual brokenness is a redeemable issue. Anything that has been broken because of sin is fixable because of grace. Anything that is a sin issue is a redeemable issue because Jesus came to redeem sinners. And so there's hope. Wherever you sit in this room today, there's hope. Whether you are actively pursuing sexual sin through addiction or some form of that, there's hope, freedom. If you're in a place where you're married and there is little to any sexual intimacy within your marriage because of your past and each other's past brokenness and shame, there's hope. Because Christ came to redeem the broken. Came to make whole sinful. Paul addresses this, turn with me, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. First Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, verse 9. 
Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Right now, it mentions specifically multiple types of sexual sin. I believe probably enough types of sexual sin that we're all in the midst of that. If by some chance you find yourself righteous enough not to be included in the sexual sins that it mentions, then it also mentions the greedy, swindler, those who are verbally abusive towards others, thieves, drunkards. Right? There's enough here to, to condemn all of us. We're all sinners in the same place. Here's what he says. Verse 11. And some of you used to be like this. He's speaking to the church. Right? He's speaking to the church here. And he says, in speaking to the church, don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. No sexually immoral people, no idolaters, no adulterers, no males who have sex with males, or thieves, or greedy people, or swindlers. They won't inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you are like this. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. These people won't inherit the kingdom of God. Their sin has kept them from God. And some of you are like them, but you have been washed And hear me, church, some of you in this room today just feel dirty. Your sexual sin leaves you feeling dirty. The sexual sin that's been done to you leaves you feeling dirty. But if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then you have been washed. You're no longer dirty, but you're clean. See, Pastor, I just looked at it today. I looked at pornography today. I fell into sexual sin today. This says you have been made clean. You have been washed. The stance that you find yourself in before God, if you've trusted in Jesus, is a clean one, not a dirty one, despite the dirty act you were a part of this morning. That needs confessed. It needs repented of. It needs turned from. But you've been made clean. You've been washed. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. Some of us feel like our sexual sin identifies us. It is who we are. I am a pervert. I am a luster. I am a harlot. I am whatever. We look to it as our identity. I will never overcome this. And he goes, you have been sanctified. That is gone. It is not your identity anymore. And then he says, you have been justified. And some of you, because of the sexual sin that you're involved in and the sin that has happened to you, question and wonder how a loving, righteous, pure, holy God could ever accept you and want you. And he says, because of Jesus and his death on the cross, you are justified. You have been justified. You've been made right with God. He wants you because there is no longer shame in you. There is no more sin. He has rescued you, justified you because of Jesus. 
I know, church, that many of us in this room struggle with self-condemnation, with self-deprecation, and we struggle to see ourselves in grace rather than in our sin, or rather than being identified by the sin that has been done to us. But church, hear me. Because of Jesus, because of Jesus, God sees you in grace, not in wrath. He sees you as holy, not as filthy. He sees you pure, not perverted. And he sees you priceless, not worthless. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. Because he became worthless for the worthless. Because he became perverted for the perverted. Because he became filthy for the filthy. Because he took God's wrath for those who are due God's wrath. You are no longer found in that identity, Christian. Jesus has rescued you and redeemed you. And that rescuing and that redeeming includes your sexuality. He died on the cross to forgive you of all of your sins and to make all of you clean, all of you whole, and all of you good. For those of us in the room who have not trusted in Jesus, who have not clung to Jesus, hear me on this. Your identity, hear me say this in love, your identity is in your sexual sin. Your identity is in all of your sin. You are an object of God's wrath. You are filthy, you are perverted, and you are worthless apart from Christ. And I say that with all the love because you are exactly where all of us used to be. And apart from God's grace, we all still would be. So if you've not trusted in Jesus, what I plead with you to do today is to hope and trust in Jesus. He is the only one who can make you whole, the only one who can make you pure, the only one who can forgive you. Your ability, your attempts to clean yourself up morally and to cover over your shame will leave you wanting. Only when you trust in Christ does he erase our shame and make us whole. Trust in Jesus. Now, church, one day we're going to see this reality in its whole in its entirety. Revelation chapter 21 tells us he has made all things new. He will make all things new. He'll wipe away every tear, every grief, every fear, including in the area of sexuality. We one day will find this reality to be true, Christian. The question is, what now? How do we walk in that reality now? How do we live in that reality now? How do we embrace it now? Well, I believe 1 Corinthians 6 gives us two points to this. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immortal sins against his own body. Flee it. If you are someone who is in sexual sin, flee it. All right, run from it, get rid of it, do all it takes to kill it. Put up every bit of accountability. You must confess it, you must repent of it, you must turn from it, you must bring in accountability, and you must kill that sin. Think the illustration of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, the young man and the woman who was enticing him to sleep with her, and he would not do it. And so it says he ripped himself away from her and fled into the streets, into public, where the temptation was not there. We must do all we can to flee sexual immorality, to find wholeness and healing, which brings us to verse 20. 
You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. If we want to be people living in the reality of our sexual redemption, then we must be people who want and desire and seek to glorify God with our bodies, which means our sexuality. That is an act of glorifying God, an act of worship when we seek wholeness sexually. Which means this, husbands and wives, have sex. Enjoy sex. Give God glory by abstaining from sexual immorality. And it also means this, pursue wholeness in every way sexually for the glory of God. There's some of you here who are broken and shattered sexually because of your sin or sin that's been done with you, and you're doing nothing to pursue wholeness. You've chosen sexual avoidance, acting as if it's not part of your life that you need to address or deal with. But sex was made for the glory of God. And in choosing avoidance, you've chosen shame. And in choosing avoidance, you've chosen to rob God of glory that's due him through your sexuality. So we must do all that we can to see health in our lives this way, which includes confession. Confession of your sin and confession of sin that's been done towards you for your healing. Perhaps for you, that should be done in your community group. If you're close, if you're tight, if you have a good group, if this is your first week in group, that might not be the thing for you this week. Hey guys, my name's Tim. Nice to meet you. Here's my sin. It might be. It might be a group of people, friends, who love Jesus. We're not asking you to confess to people who don't love Jesus. You find people who love Jesus and confess to them. The world has nothing to offer you here. Go to people who love Jesus and confess this. Confess what's been done to you and what you've done for your healing process. And our pastors will walk with you. You confess and you repent. You turn from it. Fleeing is what's found here in repenting. That we run the other direction from it. But some of us, for our wholeness, we need to seek counseling. Biblical, gospel-centered counseling that will speak to your brokenness. Just so happens Emmaus has a counseling agency. And our counselors love to walk with people who are sexually broken and help them find wholeness and healing. You must do what it takes for the glory of God and the joy of your heart and your spouse to find joy. And if you're not married, this is the perfect time to pursue wholeness. Before you get married, deal with it now. Finally, men. Men in the room, it is your responsibility to lead out in this if you're married. It is your responsibility to lead out in this if you're married. God put Adam in the garden and he gave him headship, which means he was to subdue and rule creation. He was to lead, serve, and protect and take responsibility for his wife. God held Adam responsible for Eve's sin. God held Adam responsible for Eve's shame. When the serpent came to her to steal from her, to bring shame upon her, Adam should have protected her. He should have rebuked the serpent. He should have exercised his God-given dominion over the beast of the field. But instead, Adam didn't protect or rule. 
The beast took dominion over mankind. Eve led her husband, and the result equaled a broken relationship with her God, stained intimacy with each other, and a shame-filled life. And as Matt Chandler points out in his book, Mingling Souls, any man who stumbles and falls in incredible ways does so because his sins have roots in some fundamental passivity. Men, your passivity and redeeming sexuality within your marriage is leading you and your wife to live a life of shame and to rob God of his glory from your sexuality. It is your responsibility as the husband to lead out in walking in redemption of your sexuality. This is not an excuse for you to be aggressive, demanding, abusive, manipulative with, with your wife for sexual activity. That is not what we're getting at. What this might actually mean is long periods of abstinence for the sake of your wife's sexual healing and your sexual healing. It means, men, that it requires from us to confess, repent, and flee from our sexual sin as men. That we would find our identity and our security in Christ. And that we would then gently and patiently and lovingly pursue wholeness and healing with our wives in all areas so that our sexuality will flourish with each other. You must be willing, men, to put your pride aside as husbands and as men, and you must lead out in pursuing sexual wholeness for the sake of yourself, for the sake of your wife, for the sake of your children, and for the sake of the gospel. Your responsibility, men, to have the conversation and to pursue wholeness. I married a woman whose childhood had been riddled with sexual abuse and trauma. And because of that, it brought anxiety and fear and brokenness into our marriage sexually. My wife married a man who had been exposed to pornography at a very young age through an uncle's magazine in his basement. And after 15 years of sexual addiction entered marriage, broken and ashamed and passive towards my wife sexually. For years, I had taken selfish pleasure in sexuality, and now I didn't know how to take healthy, godly pleasure in sexuality. A few years into marriage, I had to confess to Tish that I had again looked at pornography. That started me on a journey of my brokenness, of sin, and finding healing. And it started her on a journey of that, and it caused much insecurity. Because of depression and anxiety and other things, my wife began to go to counseling, and going through counseling, she had to unpack all the sexual abuse and trauma that had happened to her. And in that process, she began to find healing. What we found is that as she found healing, I had not yet found healing. And time came that we had to pursue healing together in counseling. Thousands of dollars and 10 years into marriage, 11 years into marriage, sorry, babe, we found healing. It wasn't quick. It wasn't a sprint. But I'm overjoyed to stand here and to tell you, church, that for the first time, for the first time in my life, I can preach a gospel 
on the redemption of sexuality and not just know it in theory, not just know it theologically, but know it experientially. And God does redeem that. He does make it whole. He does bring life where there was death, wholeness where there was brokenness. Because our broken sexuality is a sin issue, it is a redeemable issue. Most of us, not all of us, are tempted with some type of sexual sin or sexual avoidance. But the gospel does not exempt us from digging through our messy temptations. In fact, the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and the wholeness of our hearts forces us to dig through our temptations for the glory of God. And so today, church, we dig. Pray that you would dig and that you would find wholeness the resurrected Son of God. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.